testing one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's poppy enough. Wonderful. Yep. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go. We're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals, really. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. Welcome to the Talking Urology podcast, supported by an educational grant from Ipsen. Today's podcast comes from the breakfast session at the Asia-Pacific Prostate Cancer Conference in Melbourne 2016. Joseph Iskia spoke to Dr. Stacey Loeb about what it's like to be a New York urologist visiting Melbourne. Good morning again. Hope you've enjoyed your breakfast. It's now time to sort of change the pace a bit, and I want to get you into an empire state of mind. Oh, yeah, that's cool. We're going to be talking New York. We're going to be talking prostate cancer. And from the concrete jungles where dreams are made of, apparently, with a pocket full of dreams, and the city that breathed life into Seinfeld and cobbled the teetering heels of Carrie Bradshaw, all the way from Manhattan, we have Stacey Lowe. Welcome, Stacey. So, Stacey, welcome. Thank you. We're doing it. It's a fireside chat, so you just got to imagine we've got one of those fake fires going in the background here where we can talk. So, we often see you here in Melbourne in, uh, in September, and I know it's because you're pursuing your one true love, which is Australian Rules Football Finals time. That's right. Go Cats. It must have been wonderfully serendipitous that there's also a prostate cancer conference going on. And so. Fashion Week. You forgot Fashion Week. Yes, I must admit I forgot Fashion Week. You're, <laughs> at, you're absolutely right, Stacey. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and we were actually we were just having an interesting chat before, and you were telling me that you were on the treadmill here once in Australia, and on the TV you managed to watch three sports in a row you'd never seen before. That's right. So, the so, first one was the Netball World Championship. And I thought, huh, I've never even heard of netball in my whole life. <laughs> and I posted it on Facebook, you know, look at this funny Australian sport. It's like volleyball, basketball. We do. We like to mix them all together. And, and the Australian rules, are you, uh, have yes, you been Yes, well, now I've been with Tony. Very, very nice. But that, that was different, too, you know, because that's like kind of like soccer, but also like American football. So, I mean, these guys don't wear any padding and they're like tackling each other. So seemed a bit brutal. Oh, well, we, we breed them tough down here. <laughs> so we should talk prostate cancer. And I want to start with the uh, with PSA screening. So let's talk about, so the US Preventive Services Task Force has come out and recommended against PSA screenings a few years ago now. And that's largely based on the results of the American PLCO trial, which found that men had no advantage from screening. But what we found is that, and recent revelations have shown that in the non-screening arm, in fact, the, as many men in the non-screening arm had screening as in the screening arm. Have you found that American men have stayed true to form and despite being recommended not to have screening, are they still having it or have you noticed a drop off? Oh, there's definitely a huge drop-off. Um, I mean, we are doing so many fewer prostate biopsies. Actually, in the past couple of months, we've been trying to recruit to some biomarker studies, and it's for patients who are having a biopsy to get their blood drawn before the biopsy. And there's been so few biopsies at the Veterans Hospital that we're just having very slow recruitment to the studies. So I just even noticed it in terms of that. 
But, I mean, this is only one organization, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So even though the oncology and urology professional societies do recommend shared decision-making, still that group, the Preventive Services Task Force, is influential among primary care doctors and internal medicine. And those are the physicians that order the most PSA tests. Urologists only order about 7% of all the PSAs in the United States. So by having a huge drop-off in primary care and internal medicine, that's where most of the screening is done, and those patients don't even reach us in order to have shared decision-making. Okay. Are there any changes afoot? Has there been any sort of movements regarding these latest revelations to maybe readdress it or, in fact, get someone who's even seen somebody with prostate cancer on the panel? Well, definitely. I mean, it has been a big legislative priority of the AUA, to make sure that there are prostate cancer experts represented in the task force. Uh, I have heard that the task force is revising the guidelines right now. I don't know if they'll take the new PLCO revelations into consideration. I would certainly hope so. Um, I mean, if you think about it, if we were looking at a randomized trial of, let's say, a medication for hypertension or diabetes, you know, if over 90% of the controls took the medicine, you know, would, would that be considered a good trial and would they believe that any impact of the drug? So I just think, you know, we really have to reconsider this. I mean, that cannot be even on the table as part of the discussion about the efficacy of screening because efficacy is, you know, screening versus no screening. And that was lots of screening versus lots of screening. Yep, it's tough to find a difference. I guess one of the other points they make too is that they're worried about the concerns of the harms of treatment. You know, one of the solutions uh, for that is active surveillance. Now, we've been you know, rapid adopters of active surveillance in Australia. I was chatting to Tony earlier, and he's been doing it for 30 years. Uh, but the Americans are, seem to be a bit behind the ball on active surveillance. Why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, there's no question it's lower. I've been doing a lot of collaborations with the Swedish National Registry, which has data for all prostate cancer in Sweden. You know, and they've got over 90% of very low-risk patients and 74% of low-risk on active surveillance in Sweden. I just saw the recent data from here in Victoria, 66% of low-risk on active surveillance. So I think you guys are way ahead because the numbers in the U.S. are more in the 40 to 50% range, at least as of a couple years ago when the most recent data are available. So it's definitely increasing, but I think there's a lot of pressures against it. I mentioned a few of these in my talk yesterday. Uh, you know, for one thing, it is kind of a cultural thing, and even these randomized trials have trouble recruiting in the United States. I mean, my own dad, if you asked him, you know, would he be in a randomized trial of observation versus surgery, he would never agree to something like that. He would just want to have surgery. And actually, even if he had low-risk disease, he would prefer to have surgery and just be done. He doesn't want to have another 10 biopsies over the course of his life and have to deal with knowing it's there forever. So I think there are some patient preference issues. Now, could we do a better job with counseling? I think we yeah. probably could. I mean, people do not get panicked about basal cell skin cancer, even though it is cancer and it has the C word. So could we rephrase the whole discussion? I think maybe we could. And they, these Gleason grading changes may be useful. Actually calling it grade group one 
because when you tell someone they have a six, that doesn't really sound like the lowest yeah. possible number. It sounds like you're on the bad yeah, side. Yeah, it sounds it? like it's kind of in the middle somewhere. So we did talk to patients about this in, in focus groups, and they said that being told they have a one would make them feel more comfortable about their cancer. So hopefully these little small changes can happen. But there's still a lot of advertising for treatment in the United States, and there's financial incentives, there's medical legal pressures, and all of those things are still going to exist. So what do you think is the optimal rate we should be aiming for? Knowing that, I don't think there's been a single study that has ever shown a survival advantage for low-risk disease. Should we be aiming for 90, 95%? I think we should be aiming for 90, 95%, recognizing that there is never going to be 100% because not all men want it. And so this was a debate on Twitter a few weeks ago, you know, uh, should you even be willing to do a prostatectomy on those patients? But, you know, as I said with my father, there's, you know, there's active surveillance is not without risks. You know, if you have a guy who had sepsis after a prostate biopsy and he was hospitalized, he may not be excited about the prospect of having another five or even 15 biopsies in his remaining lifetime. So, Well, you bring up some interesting points there, and that's the, the, the prostate biopsy. You recently published, If we, you mentioned Twitter, but let's go back old school. You recently published in European Urology uh, the results of your prostate biopsy and its complications. We've, uh, uh, you know, in some centres, rapidly moving to transperineal biopsy because we have quite a high rate of sepsis in Australia. I mean, it's probably in the vicinity of three to five percent. What percentage of prostate biopsies in Manhattan are being done transperineally versus transrectal? Probably close to zero are being done transperineally. It's just not offered frequently in the United States. And why is that? Um, I, part of it is, uh, you know, the logistical considerations, the cost. Um, I mean, it's very hard to get OR time, even just to do, you know, big cancer operations. Um, we have six robots at our hospital, and they are continuously being used to the point that we're now adding Saturday operating rooms so that people can get robot time on a Saturday if they can't get to use one of the six during the week. So this is kind of the backdrop for, so if we were to ask for a, an OR to do general anesthesia, to do prostate biopsies all day, you know, that would just be very difficult within the limited OR availability. Plus, then you add the risks of general anesthesia. It's much more costly. So doing it in the clinic, you know, it's like a five-minute procedure takes a little bit longer if you're doing a fusion biopsy, but still very short, and you can be seeing patients in the clinic, the biopsies being prepared in the next room over, you just go back and forth. So for us, the logistical workflow is easy. You know, and I had uh, one of your Australian colleagues spending a day with me in clinic and, you know, hadn't, hadn't seen the transrectal biopsy done in clinic with local anesthesia before, and thought, you know, gosh, this must be very barbaric. And I said, no, you know, watch. I mean, nobody's screaming. They're not crying in there. So, you know, they tolerate it well. Most of these guys, you know, go to the gym later in the day. Yeah. Well, actually, I did. I learned to do the under local anesthesia. There was a lot of screaming. And the patient asked me if I was OK. But uh, <laughs> so it, it was a traumatic experience. Well, he must not play Aussie rules football <laughs> then, because you guys are tougher than that. Yeah, well, the patients are. You're right. Uh, so what is your rate of sepsis then? Like what, 
because um, oh. our health economics guys have looked into it, and for every ICU admission, and I think they look, there's approximately one death a year in Australia, just healthy men having sepsis. So that was a, that's why we've really moved away. And I think it's got a lot to do with our proximity to Southeast Asia. We have, if you yes. holiday there, you pick up these resistant organisms. So ours is actually very low now, but because we've taken preventive strategies at all of our hospitals, at NYU we have rectal swab cultures, which we use for high-risk patients. And at the Veterans Hospital, we do anti-biogram targeted prophylaxis. So about every six months, the infectious disease doctors check the antibiograms and check which organisms have resistance and give us a new antibiotic plan. Okay. Uh, so we've effectively reduced our sepsis rates at both hospitals using those two different approaches. Okay. I guess another way, I mean, as you said, there's a lot of biopsies now in active surveillance. And one of the ways that we might be able to reduce biopsies are with the new genetic markers or new genetic tests that are around. Now, I know that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people, are, are proponents of it in the States or Manhattan, but we're not, we really haven't been rapid, you know, rapid adopters here in Australia. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's useful? Does it have a, a strong role? The genomic test, I think they can be useful in borderline cases. Or, as I mentioned before, we have a lot of people who are not so sure about doing active surveillance. So if you really think that the patient is a good candidate for surveillance and that you sh they shouldn't need treatment, but they're you know, very hesitant to accept that strategy, giving them this extra piece of data as a confirmation that it really is indolent cancer can be helpful. Uh, but we don't use them in all cases or even in most cases. So it's really just for the borderline patients. What we do use the most is MRI. Okay. Uh, most patients receive an MRI. We do most of our biopsies targeted. And if somebody's referred over with prostate cancer who hasn't had an MRI, usually they would have one before moving forward with the next step, whether that's surgery or active surveillance. So when do you think is the ideal type? So everybody should have your PSA is elevated. We're going to biopsy. You need an MRI. Is that where you... See it being useful. Well, I think the most evidence is there for doing the MRI before repeat biopsy. Mm -hmm. You know, that famous quote about insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So if we didn't find it and we're just going to stick the needles in randomly again. So, and you know, there was a new consensus statement that does recommend that if you have an experienced MRI program, which we do, that that should be offered before repeat biopsies. So every repeat biopsy that I see, I recommend that they get an MRI first. Now, initial biopsy, that is still more debatable. Um, there are some people in my practice that do attempt to get an MRI before every biopsy, because then if that patient is diagnosed, they've already had their MRI, and why not do the biopsies the best way possible from the beginning? But, you know, the data aren't totally there on the cost-effectiveness of that, so I think that's probably where the focus needs to be. Active surveillance, I mean, we are using MRI to reduce the frequency of biopsy, right or wrong. You know, not all the data are there yet for serial MRI on active surveillance, but certainly it is an intermediate step. So now that we actually have a couple of tests, the PHI test and the MRI that have been tested in active surveillance patients, it's nice that there's some other testing options, you know, to get away from this every one to two year biopsy. Okay, but well, I guess we don't need to worry too much though because now we've got HIFU. 
So uh, it virtually has no side effects from what I understand. But it's coming. And I thought one of the best talks that I saw at the AUA was the talk from the FDA regulator who stood up and said that they tried to get HIFU approved as a treatment for prostate cancer and that it failed, but it was approved because it was equivalent to a scalpel. So are you seeing this new scalpel being used in Manhattan? It is, it is. So now it is available in the United States. Uh, but our patients were getting it before. They were paying cash, I think $10,000, and flying to the Bahamas, you know, so you could have Bahamas weekend and get the HIFU treatment. So at least now that it's available, hopefully people can begin some more registries of it and look at this a bit more closely. And are you adopting it, uh, uh, NYU uh, adopting We do have HIFU, and we mm -hmm. were participants in some of the studies of HIFU. So mm -hmm. uh, HIFU has been available to our patients in some format for quite some time. We have other types of focal therapy too. Mm -hmm. My uh, chair, Dr. Lepore, has done some um, clinical trials of focal laser ablation, and they have cryotherapy, so it's not the only focal option. I'm not sure who is a good candidate for focal therapy to begin with, but for those who choose that route, there are certainly many places that they can go in New York City. Okay, so it is around. Yeah, I guess it's, it will be coming, I think. I think people... And, and CyberKnife. Don't forget CyberKnife. So, and yesterday in my lecture, maybe you saw that my subway stop on Spring Street and on 2nd Avenue both have big ads for prostate cancer CyberKnife. So you can't make it through New York City without seeing some kind of prostate cancer advertising. Well, it's, uh, I guess it's coming. The states sort of seem to be five to ten years ahead of us. And it's all going to come down to marketing, I think. And they claim you know, the no side effects is very appealing for what can be quite a morbid you know, treatment for this condition. Now let's move on to uh, something else, and that's really your, your love of social media. You are really one of the doyens of social media, with Declan himself, who's well, also here. Well, I should here. give the credit to Declan, yeah. because you know, it was he who got me started on Twitter at this meeting. I was here at this meeting and they were tweeting about my talk. I remember this vividly. I was on the stage talking about prostate biopsy complications and they said, oh, you just got a question from Mike Leverage in Canada who wants to know what prophylaxis are you using? And I thought, you know, how the heck does a guy in Canada know what we're talking about in Australia? You know, this is, I don't know if this is creepy or the coolest <laughs> thing ever. So, but Mike that was Leverage. when Declan made me recognize that I was so young, but I was already a dinosaur, and if I didn't jump on this, it was going to run away without me. So well, I think that ship has sailed, and you know, it's here, it's here to stay. Well, you certainly are running at the front of the pack now. <laughs> so what, do you, what role do you think Twitter will have? Or I mean, We'll stick to Twitter, because I think it's probably one of the most one, one, common ones we see. What role do you think it has in medicine or conferences? Let's start with medicine. What, what do you use it for when you're following the literature or? I mean, it is my main source of news. It is a tailored news stream. You know, if anyone who says that they're worried that it will waste their time, then I challenge them to make their feed more tailored to their interests because everybody reads some kind of news, some journal, something. So if your Twitter feed is exactly the things that you would look at otherwise, it's just coming to you in a very succinct way. So I use that to find out about all the new articles that are coming out to discuss conference proceedings. I mean, how cool is that, that you can actually virtually attend a conference in another part of the world and, you know, in real time. Yep. You can see slides of what people are presenting. 
You do have to be careful, though. You know, sometimes I've seen people give a similar talk at different meetings from year to year. So there's this very famous slide where focal therapy is like getting a haircut, because if you get a bad haircut, you know, don't worry, because if it grows back, you just get a new haircut. So there's this focal therapy haircut slide that kept circulating, and then it's like, oh my god, it's the haircut slide again. <laughs> and then there, but you know, the discussions are very nuanced and funny, like, well, focal therapy, so, well, it must be a bad haircut. Maybe it's like an 80s perm, focal therapy, so. But, you know, it's fun to read these comments. Just yesterday, there was some interesting Twitter discussion about the study that we talked about where ejaculation frequency reduces the risk of prostate cancer more than 21 times a month associated with a lower risk of prostate cancer. And that got a lot of comments on social media. Some of the participants here were saying, wow, finally a public health message that teenage boys everywhere can endorse. <laughs> Absolutely. So you get some very nuanced discussion about some of these scientific findings. Very good. I particularly enjoyed a tweet you did, must have been almost 12 months ago, where you, you sort of gave the do's and don'ts of conference tweeting. So do you want to run, can you run me through those? Do you remember it or are you so many tweets to the wind now? Well, you know, I think, well, one of, one of my main things is that you should ask yourself two questions every time you tweet. Number one, if this is on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow, is that going to cause me a problem? So if the answer is yes, then you don't want to put that out there because these things are permanent. So, but you know, these meeting, um, conference proceedings, this is all in the public domain. So I think that kind of stuff is fair game, but you don't want to post pictures of parties or anything unprofessional, definitely never any confidential patient information. So it can be a nice way to discuss cases, but it just has to be in very general terms. Like, has anyone done a prostatectomy after HIFU? Any tips? Without saying, I'm seeing a 51-year-old man, you know, named XYZ. So that's number one, that it has to be able to be on the New York Times. And number two, I ask myself, does anyone in Australia care about this? <laughs> Because, you know, if my train is delayed in New York City or it's raining or, you know, the AUA doesn't have enough sandwiches at the cafeteria, things, these are the things that go on there. And somebody over here who's just following the conference feed, they don't care. They don't care that it's standing room only in the session. They don't care that you arrived. You don't need to announce, <laughs> hi, I just arrived to the AUA. Yeah, hashtag you know? AUA 16. So the yeah, way to announce all. that you've arrived is to put out their good content from the meeting, and then everyone will see you're sitting there, but they don't have to hear the long version of every step you took all day. So I, I think it's all about being parsimonious. Just limit it to high quality content that people care about with, without a lot of miscellaneous stuff. Yeah, I think this is one of my issues with Twitter. I don't think there's a single tweet that would appeal to everybody because I've got a group of passionate football supporters and I can imagine there's not many people in New York that are going to be that disappointed by right. the umpiring decisions you know, in the last quarter of a close Yeah, so match, I so. think with things like that, you can either start the tweet with the name of the football organization and, and hashtags so that only people that are following that group also see those tweets and that way your whole following doesn't have to participate. Okay. So that would be one way to engage in a conversation like that if you want to without you know, burdening the Americans who don't care about the referee issue. Umpires. Um, 
the or, unpaused yeah, spicy. So I think there are ways around it. But every so often having a tweet about your own interests I think is okay because that does show the human side and sometimes you realize you have the same interests as somebody. Uh, just last week actually this guy who I met on Twitter, he's a urologist in Florida, he had had a few tweets about his fitness regimen and it turns out we do a lot of the same fitness programs. And so I only knew that because occasionally he tweets about his outside interests. So he happened to be in New York City last week. We met up and did a fitness class together. So I think sometimes even within the professional world, that can be nice for networking to see that these are real people. And some of the people you see at conferences may have a lot more in common with you outside urology. Good. Now, there's nothing more New York than your own radio program. So tell us a little bit about that. How long have you been doing it? Oh, and what, tell us a little bit about four what's the and a half years now. So wow. this is Sirius XM. It's uh, U.S. and Canada's satellite radio. So it comes kind of preloaded in people's cars. If you buy a new car in the U.S. or Canada, usually that's in there, and uh, so people can continue the subscriptions. There is also internet subscriptions. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's about 32 million subscribers to Sirius XM, and. Uh, over a hundred channels. So Howard Stern is channel 101. I'm channel 110. <laughs> so close, but interesting typos. Yeah, there, there, we might have some overlap in the topics. Actually, <laughs> well, you know, he focuses more on the ejaculation uh, studies, <laughs> I suspect. But the ejaculation is a very popular one on my show. <laughs> I mean, when that study came out, I had Jennifer Ryder on. I had, I've, each time she's published any kind of update on that, I've had her on in the questions that you get because you can dial in. And these are people from all over the US and Canada. So it'll be, you know, hi, I'm Bob from Vancouver. And I'm just wondering, you know, is this like an average or does it have to be every month? So like, you know, so what if I ejaculate only five times one month, but then the next month, like 40 times, does that still count? And so it's, you know, you, I, I thought, wow, you know, I hadn't even considered that perspective. <laughs> so you get some really interesting questions on these shows and, you know, maybe a, a new way of looking at the topic. Well, that might be good because teenagers would certainly build up the bank. They would, uh, <laughs> so what's been your, with the radio show, what was your most popular show that you've done that you've had the most feedback from? And well, I think that one was certainly a popular one. Another one that was a big hit was the systematic review of penis size. I think all the penis topics <laughs> tend to be very popular for U.S. radio, as you can probably see from the news that comes over here from the United States. You know, we, we, are, we have some cultural limitations, and so that is the kind of thing that gets the audience stimulated. Um, definitely a... Burnett has been on with me talking about um, priapism. That, that's an interesting topic for the listeners. Oh, yes, they would. Uh, we get a lot of calls about it, whether there's any kind of surgeries for penis enlargement that are approved. Very good. So the key issues are being discussed. All right. We are going to have to wind up soon because it has come to the end of our time. But being, I guess one thing I want to tell how about we talk, just very quickly touch on the dark side of being such a prominent figure and um, a key opinion leader like you are. are there, have there been any times where you've had feedback where you think it was unfair or, you know, where, because you really put yourself out there as an opinion leader, I think, and you get, you know, for 95% people will agree with you and 5% won't or whatever it is. Do you, do you have a way of dealing with that? 
I mean, I think the key is just to try to not take things personally, you know, and sometimes there's debates on Twitter where, you know, my heart rate starts to go up, but then I just think, you know, I should just be grateful for my life, you know, my fam I've got a great family, everybody's healthy, I have a good job, great friends, so, you know, if you just try to step aside from these, you know, professional debates and realize that, you know, you do have a life outside of this and you're not going to let it upset you. And fitness, you know, I think, uh, and you guys have been just so innovative and advanced in bringing all this uh, multidisciplinary care to prostate cancer patients. And I mean, definitely, I think if I didn't work out every day, I would probably go nuts. But fitness is just so critical, just pounding out that stress on the pavement. And there's almost no chance that you can't feel at least slightly better after a workout. Well, I certainly feel better now. It's been wonderful having you here today, Stacey. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for coming along this morning. Do any burning questions from the audience before we wrap it up? I think, look at that. As always, you've covered everything and silenced them. Well done, Stacey. Thank you very Thank much. Thank this has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ibsen.